using philosophy to understand our city and to change it. This is Phi on New York, the podcast of the Gotham Philosophical Society, with your host, Joe Beal. Welcome to Phi on New York. I am Joe Beal. I'm the executive director of the Gotham Philosophical Society, and I'm very excited to start this new podcast, the format of which will be to approach an idea or theme through two different but hopefully complementary conversations. One will be with a practicing philosopher and is intended to orient us theoretically by locating the theme within existing philosophical concerns. We will then approach the topic from the perspective of someone working on the inside, so to speak, through a conversation with a New Yorker wrestling with it in practice. My hope is that by bringing theoretical insight and practical experience together in this way, we will suggest a more comprehensive understanding of the issues we face. Before heading over to our first pair of discussions, which focus on the perils and possibilities of elections and the importance of civic engagement and responsive government, I do think it's worthwhile to offer a few words of introduction, maybe even justification, for the very idea of a podcast that uses philosophy to address the questions and challenges posed by living in New York. The first thing to say is that I approach philosophy not as a form of expertise that provides definitive or logically demonstrable answers to life's persistent questions, but rather as the essential activity of critical reflection on inherently human practices, investigating them with the aim of understanding why they exist, how they work, and how they might be improved or superseded. And it is because it is in the city that the greatest diversity of such practices can be found that makes it the ideal place to philosophize. As the philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich observed, by its nature, the metropolis proves what otherwise could be given only by traveling, namely the strange. Since the strange leads to questions and undermines familiar tradition, it serves to elevate reason to ultimate significance. The city incites us to philosophize because the city is where we can expect our assumptions about how to live to be challenged. City life stirs us from our dogmatic slumber by presenting us with lives lived differently than our own. Here we can expect to be confronted by choices we have not made, beliefs we do not hold, and goals we have not set. In the city, we are continuously exposed to the other, and we come to better understand ourselves as individuals and as a community through that opposition. To commit to living in the city is to embrace what the philosopher Iris Marion Young called the being together of strangers. It is to accept a form of social life that often seems defined by deep disagreement about how the problems of living in community can be effectively and efficiently mitigated. They are rarely, if ever, resolved. Philosophy is therefore an invaluable tool for navigating the urban experience. And that is why this podcast exists. And so now on to discussions of elections and democratic engagement as promised. The theme is occasioned by the very consequential election season that New York City is in as the primary races for a majority of city council seats, four borough presidencies, two district attorneys, the city comptroller, 
public advocate, and of course, mayor begin to heat up. And if such elections in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on the city were not sufficient reason to focus our attention on them, the introduction of ranked choice voting in New York City provides another. To help me understand this new voting system and why it matters, I speak with Susan Lerner, the executive director of Common Cause New York and the head of Rank the Vote NYC. But before that, however, I'm joined by Alex Guerrero, associate professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, for a conversation on whether elections are really the best way for a democratic society to go about its business. Here's my interview with Professor Guerrero. Alex Guerrero. Thank you for joining me on FI on New York. Thanks so much for having me. I want to ask you um, about your work. Uh, you work uh, in various areas, but you work in political epistemology. Tell us what political epistemology is. So political philosophy is, you know, a old, old field going, you know, all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Plato. Political philosophy focuses on, you know, questions like what is justice? What kind of government or state should we have? You know, what is democracy? Um, those kinds of uh, big picture abstract questions about politics, often in a kind of evaluative mode, like is this a good system to have? Is this just? Um, epistemology is the study usually focused on the individual of knowledge of when a person is justified in believing something uh, when they know something, and sort of looking at this usually from an individualistic perspective. And then political epistemology kind of brings these things together in a complicated way. So thinking about political institutions, you might say, look, whether they're good or not, is going to be partly a function of how they act in the world, what they do in response to our problems. Do they help us solve our problems? Do they help us work together? Do they help us maintain peace and harmony? And whether they do those things is in turn going to be partly a function of what those institutions have access to by way of information and knowledge and truth, right? So if they're completely out of touch with reality, it's hard to see how the political institutions will do a good job solving our problems. Just as as an individual, if you have no idea what's good for you to eat, if no beliefs about that or all your beliefs are false, you're going to get sick really quickly, right? You're not going to you know, wander around picking up things from the street and eating them. You know, that's obviously not a way to live. So you might think political institutions, we have similar kinds of concerns and those emerge in all kinds of different ways. So one focus of political epistemology is thinking about how is it that the political institutions are informed about the world? What are the mechanisms by which uh, they make decisions and get information? And related to that often is the question of what, you know, in a democracy, do voters know about the world, about the political world, about policy options, and how can we improve the performance of the political system, maybe by thinking about the contribution that voters are making, what voters know, what they're paying attention to, how they're getting their information, how they're influencing each other. So all those questions end up having, maybe they have a moral dimension, but they also have an epistemic dimension. They affect sort of what the political system knows, and that affects sort of how it operates. So we often hear about uh, the low information voter uh, and claims about considerable uh, voter ignorance. 
so that's an issue that you have been working on. You've written about epistemic pathologies um, that result um, from our electoral system, the, the very basis that it, the, the system that is rooted in voting. Could you speak to that? Sure. Yeah, I've got a book coming out in which there's two parts. Half of it is basically raising worries about electoral representative democracy. And so some of those worries are, I mean, the system's supposed to work where, you know, we as individuals don't have all the knowledge or time to come to have kind of informed views about policy, right? That's why we use representatives in the first place. Otherwise we can have what's called a direct democracy and we all just vote on everything. Be even easier now in you know, the era of computers and the internet, we can all just sign on each morning, vote on a bunch of legislation and go about our days. Nobody thinks that would be a good idea though because we acknowledge you'd need to know a lot of stuff about that legislation for that to work well. Like we'd end up making pretty bad choices or at least we might worry about that. It's also really hard to talk to each other and learn from each other about policy if we're doing it that way. So we think, oh, well, we'll choose representatives and they'll be in our place and act on our behalf. And they'll do that because if they don't, we won't reelect them, right? So the theory is that we pick somebody who's going to represent our interests and then we can hold them accountable through elections. And so we don't need to know everything about policy. Uh, it's a sort of shortcut in a way using representatives. Uh, the problem, as I see it, is the shortcut works only if we know enough to hold our representatives meaningfully accountable. So to really evaluate what they're doing and think about, is this good policy? Is this good for me? Is this good for the world? Is it really addressing the biggest issues that we have, the biggest problems that we have? And to worry on that front is if you know, we weren't well-informed enough to do direct democracy, are we going to be well-informed enough to do you know, electoral representative democracy? So when I'm teaching, I often ask my undergraduates, you know, raise your hand if you know who your congressional representative is. Can you name that person? Very few of them can even name who their congressional representative is. So that's an initial kind of problem. You don't even know who they are. How can you hold them accountable? You know, beyond that, even if you can name them, do you know what they're doing in detail? Do you know who's talking and influencing, talking to them and influencing them? If you don't know those things, at least the worry I have is we end up getting a lot of elected officials, elected representatives who are basically captured by special interests who do have their ear, who help them write policy that's good for those interests, but maybe not good for all of us. So I have that kind of worry in the background with the basic mechanism of the system that ordinary citizens don't have enough information to hold their representatives being fully accountable. And so that leads to a lot of capture. Uh, additionally, I don't think it's an easy problem to fix. Uh, for the same reason, we couldn't easily make direct democracy work. For all of us to get that kind of information would take a ton of our time, a ton of our attention, and we don't have the interest or the, uh, the ability to spend that time on these things, right? So most modern policy, is incredibly technical and complicated. You know, the Affordable Care Act is thousands of pages long, incredibly detailed. It's not easy. It's not like we just need to pick up the newspaper each morning and then we'd have enough information. Arguably, we'd need to spend way more time than that. And, you know, so in the book, I talk about worries too, about the way we consume information as voters, the kind of information we get from the press that exists, and the way in which we end up focusing much more on this two-party battle rather than on the actual underlying policy. 
So I think those are all concerns that elections sort of generate. So setting us up into these teams that then we spend most of our time wearing a partisan hat, filtering information through a partisan lens. And then when we try to actually make good decisions, it's very hard for us to come together to do that. There's a lot that you just uh, said there, and I'd, I'd like to uh, try to unpack some of that and, and, and break it down. Your concern about um, uh, that you initially voiced about not knowing even who your, say, your representative is, um, that strikes me as um, a particular worry uh, for people here in New York, in the city, when you start thinking about your, your local representatives um, for whether it's city council or whether it's you know, the state assembly um, or the state senate, I'm sure you know, many New Yorkers might not know who their representatives are in these various bodies. Um, and you know, do you think that that is, um, or the worries, I, I take it are, are are they exacerbated or mitigated on the more local level? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in a way, the people, the, the elected officials who have the biggest effect on your day-to-day -day life often are your local representatives, the people, who, you know, on the school board, on the city council. Uh, they make decisions that have really direct implications for your life, but you often don't know very much about that process. That's not on the nightly news unless something really unusual is happening. Um, so people can name the president, they can name a lot of the big political actors in DC, but those people often aren't making decisions that are, are as immediately tied to your day to day. Uh, so yeah, I think there is something of a problem there, a mismatch of attention. Uh, what we'd like really is for people to be really tuned in to these kind of local level things, because that's where a lot of difference can be made. Um, you also have a larger voice. You can go to those meetings and actually interact with and influence the people that you're voting for uh, or that have you that you've elected um, and you know just the scale of it you're more likely to have an influence in the election if you go out and are active politically and can influence another hundred people in your district or your borough to vote one way or another that's way more likely to make a difference than doing a similar thing especially in a state like new york that's pretty consistently you know going blue um, that's going to make a much bigger difference than doing a similar thing at, you know, the presidential level. Um, but that's not what people do. You know, I think it's harder. That seems like, ah, you know, that's not, I don't know whether it's not fancy enough, not interesting enough. Um, and it's often is harder to get good information at that local level. So you, your, your argument is that um, due to this lack of, of knowledge, of the issues and as we were saying, perhaps even of who your representatives are. Um, we don't know what, we don't know what they're doing. We don't know how well they are uh, performing at the elected task of solving various political problems and, and issues. And so you're saying that they are much more likely, therefore, to be captured. Can you can you say a little bit more about you know, what does that mean? What is it to be for a, an elected official to be captured? It's a term in a way that comes from political science and you know from law. People who work on studying these institutions and how they work, uh, rather than kind of theorizing about whether they're good or not, they're just interested in how do they actually function. 
Uh, and a big worry is, you know, take um, a domain of policy like, uh, you know, regulating the healthcare industry or um, domestic defense spending. Um, and so there's a question of how big the problem is, how much money we should be spending on it, what policies we might want to put in place. I think often they're really complicated technical questions that involve a lot of just policy knowledge to really make an informed decision. Um, most of us don't have enough of that knowledge. We, you know, we all would like to be safe. We all want to be healthy. We want to be able to go to the doctor if we're sick. We want to be able to get good medical care. Those things we know. But in terms of how exactly they, we're going to end up getting those things in, in an affordable way, it's hard to know. And so the worry with capture is that there are some people who have a very clear interest. They know exactly what policy they want, and they will lobby very effectively uh, to get that policy. And it gets really easy for them if there's effectively a brick wall between the elected official and their constituents so that the elected official can do whatever he or she wants on the other side of that wall. We don't really know what they're up to. Uh, at the same time, they're letting people, you know, lobbyists, uh, special interests of various kinds to come work with them on the other side of that wall, drafting the legislation that we're actually going to then enact and then selling it back to us as something that's good for everybody that's solving all of our problems. So capture in a sense is when you get political um, policy laws being put in place that are good for a narrow group you know, special interest of a certain kind, but not for everybody. So they aren't in all of our interests. They might be in, you know, the interests of a, some of us, but not all of us. And that kind of policymaking, uh, I think, really is anti-democratic, but it's very hard to address. Um, and especially, so you get cases where, you know, you're trying to regulate or limit or control an industry that's very sophisticated and it's hard to know the best way to do it. It's hard to know and they know much more than we do often about uh, how to evade the particular laws we might try to come up with to regulate them effectively. Uh, so there's a bit of a cat and mouse problem already and then add in massive voter ignorance and add in the incentives elected officials have to allow this kind of influence because they need to get reelected and to get reelected, they need money. And so they're trying to all the time stay on the right side of interest with money. Well, that raises the question, it, is this, are the elected officials captured? Um, is it a, a problem of uh, corruption, the, the incentivization of, as you're saying, they, they need to raise money, they wanna be reelected. Um, is there also an element of, uh, of epistemic obstacles facing the elected officials themselves? So you you know you speak about voter ignorance. Does that ignorance extend to the elected officials? Do we have reason to believe that they are actually any more well informed about the various issues than the the voters are? Yeah, that's a great question. I think. Uh, there, you know, people try to study these things empirically, and it's hard. Uh, I think one, the short answer is I think many elected officials are less ignorant than the average voter, but still quite ignorant about a lot of what they're making policy on. And instead, what they do is just defer to the party judgment on that matter, and kind of try to stay, you know, keep their head down, not make waves. They might have a couple 
kind of pet issues that they care a lot about, that they're really concerned and knowledgeable about, maybe that they ran on and that's what their sort of focus is on. But then for a lot of the other things they're doing, they'll just kind of go along with whatever's being done. And I think that's you know very dangerous because then we get cases where I think you get both Democrats and Republicans effectively colluding to not really address a problem, not really do something because the industry interests behind it are clear. They are influencing both Democrats and Republicans and the average voter doesn't know enough to know that they're getting a bad deal through the policy that's being made. And I think sometimes the representatives are, you know, you might describe it as corrupt and they're taking this kind of money. I think often it is not that, uh, I'm not that cynical. I think people are trying to do the right thing. They just actually don't know. They don't have better information. Uh, you know, we spend $750 billion a year on defense, uh, national security, defense spending. It's a question, could we spend $400 billion a year? Would that be enough? It'd still be the world's largest military. Would that create enough safety for us? That's a hard question to answer. Arguably, yes, but it's hard to know for sure. And certainly for an elected official, it's not going to be much easier. And if you have defense contractors who are saying, no, no, we, you need this new equipment, you need this new technology to keep up, to keep things safe, it's really hard to say no, especially when your constituents aren't telling you to say no because your constituents don't know any better either. So it's a kind of, you know, you see how it happens where there just isn't the right kind of information to push back against the interests in those cases, especially when they're saying things that are at least possibly true, such as maybe we really do need this new kind of fighter jet program. How do I know? In the city, you can see the uh, debates about uh, the police budget as being uh, kind of very analogous to what to exactly what you're saying there. Um, so what did we do about it? Um, you, you have a proposal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's different things we might do. So I I suggest that you know elections really are at the heart of the problem because what they're trying to have us do is basically uh, hold people accountable by using knowledge about what they're up to and deciding whether the people are using their power in a good way or not. I suggest that mechanism's broken. We don't have the knowledge we need to really hold them accountable. Additionally, I think by having the electoral system we do, we create these two dominant political parties and members of each party come to hate the people on the other side. They come to not trust people on the other side. They vilify them. There's a lot of political science suggesting that you know, we have this in-group, out-group thinking and if you're on the other side, a lot of what I'm going to try to do is just win against you at all costs without really thinking about what's good for all of us. And it really severs the political community. And so what I'm interested in is thinking about alternatives that remain democratic, that remain including you know, everybody in the process, that remain egalitarian, really respecting equality and not seeing some as better than others. Uh, and so what I'm interested in is these systems uh, that use random selection of political officials. So rather than electing people, we would choose them at random uh, in much the way that we do jury service, um, where people would be picked. And rather than serving on a generalist legislature like Congress, where the people chosen would work on all kinds of policy issues, you'd be uh, randomly chosen to serve on a single issue legislative body. So maybe focusing just on transportation or just on health or just on education. 
And you know, you'd have three or 400 people chosen randomly to serve on this body. Uh, you'd focus on policy problems in a particular domain. You'd hear from experts and activists who have views about what ought to be done, but there'd be kind of open discussion. And then you'd come up with policy proposals, talking them through with these other 300 or 400 people that have been randomly chosen like you. Um, a lot of nice things about it, I think. So people could become better informed about these issues through hearing from experts during these learning phases. Uh, it would be people from all walks of life and all backgrounds. So rather than just electing a bunch of elite lawyers from Harvard and Yale and fancy schools like that, we'd really get people who were nurses and first uh, person in their family to go to college and unemployed and you know, single parents and a whole range of people that currently have very little direct representation in Congress. And you know, I think this would also create a community of people who are really focused on trying to address the political problems that the political community faces. So rather than being at each other's throats, we'd think, okay, what should we work on within the domain of transportation? What are the problems? What are the things we should be trying to fix? And let's work on them kind of directly. Um, now, lots of details to be filled in, but sure. that's, the, that's the basic thought. Well, look, so, I mean, that's a fascinating idea. A, a couple of quick questions I would have. Um, can people defer like they can for jury duty? Um, can, can you defer you know, permanently? Um, how would that be handled? And also, what about... Um, you know, would there be communication and consultation um, between these legislative bodies? So, you know, when issues that affect transportation also impact environment, um, you know, well, how do they, how do, you know, interconnected issues, how do they get resolved? Yeah, great. So um, on the first question, I wouldn't make it uh, mandatory for people to serve, but I would want to make it so that uh, people would be well compensated. So right now, I think jury service for a lot of people, they experience it as a burden. They feel like they're not treated that well. Um, and so you get a lot of people trying to get out of it, basically. What I'd want is for it to really have this not be like that, to make it uh, clear that it's really important, that it's uh, you're playing a large civic role. You're going to actually get significant decision-making responsibility. Uh, you could pay people well, because once you take out the whole electoral process, you save quite a lot of money, a lot of money spent on elections. And so a lot of that could be reconfigured uh, so that you could pay people for their time. Uh, and you'd allow people deferments if it wasn't a good time for them, if they just had a kid, if they were just starting some you know, training program or new job or something where it wasn't the right time, let them defer you know, a few years, five years, and then serve later. Uh, the thought would be try to make it not onerous on people and try to make it a rewarding thing. Now they've used these in uh, all over the world, you know, thousands of them, uh, citizens assemblies to do various things to address various political questions. And often when these citizens assemblies have, uh, you know, been uh, convened, the people serving on them all report loving it, the experience, like not all, but you know, almost everybody finds it transformative, life-changing, really rewarding and inspiring, suggesting like a different way for us to do politics together. So the hope is that this wouldn't be a big pain. This wouldn't be something people try to avoid. They'd instead be kind of excited to get to play this role. Now on the second issue, so one of the parts of the thing is people would be chosen at random. Another significant departure 
from the way we do things now is that it'd be kind of single issue, single area of focus. And a natural question is like, well, you know, you're working on education over here and, you know, trade over there and agriculture over here and transportation. What about when things interact or straddle? And I think there need to be mechanisms in place where these different kind of single issue bodies could be brought together to work on a particular problem if there was a clear kind of straddle concern. Or you could do what generalist legislatures do now, like Congress, where there's subcommittees and those subcommittees mostly work independent of each other, but then for some purposes they come together or you know, it has to first go through subcommittee A and then be approved by subcommittee B and then go back to subcommittee A and there's a kind of discussion between the members of these different groups. And I think you could do a similar thing with these kind of single issue legislative bodies so that you could get the input from each side and ultimately come up with some policy that really made sense. I would love to see this idea uh, in, in practice. Um, I, I think, as I said, I think it's quite uh, fascinating. Um, it won't be, though, uh, um, employed here uh, in the United States or certainly in New York um, in the immediate future. And so I want to ask you, though, about an innovation in the electoral process here in New York City um, that's starting in 2021. Um, that will be a feature of our primary um, elections, and that is ranked choice voting. Voters will have uh, the opportunity to uh, select up to five candidates in the primaries, ranking them in their order of preference. Um, do you see this as in, uh, as helpful as uh, in, with respect to the epistemic concerns that you see facing the electoral process generally? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, interesting question. Uh, so I think one thing that's hard is if you're trying to now rank a bunch of candidates, you need to know something about those candidates to have a kind of informed judgment about what you think of them, which one you prefer. And I think that's not easy to do. If we're already having trouble becoming well enough informed, we might worry on that front. On the other hand, you, you will have more of an incentive to try to do that and to pay attention. So that might be a push in a good direction. Uh, I also think a nice thing, uh, sort of independent of the epistemic issue there, is it really will push us out of a mode where campaigning is all adversarial. So rather than trying to just trash talk the other guy, you know, you might well have a more congenial attitude. You might say, well, look, she's great in these ways. I think I'm a better candidate, but if you like her better, see me as second best, right? So that you'll get ranked more highly than somebody else. So rather than the really adversarial kind of cutthroat negative campaigning, we might see more, um, you know, trying to tout one's own virtues, but not in a way that alienates the supporters of some other candidate, right? So we don't necessarily want that. And I think that is good for a lot of reasons, but some epistemic reasons. I think one of the problems we run into is that, you know, once we see, okay, I support A and I, you know, B is talking to me, look, you're not even gonna listen to what B is saying in any detail because you know you support A, you're gonna tune out B, maybe see them as the enemy and stop trusting them, think they're you know, misleading you or giving you a false picture of reality. And I think the more things in place that can kind of minimize that 
uh, in-group, out-group dynamic, the better. And so there's some hope here that, you know, something like uh, ranked choice voting really will help in that regard. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I think it's, uh, it's interesting to see how it'll play out given the kind of partial epistemic worries on the other side. Yeah. That's, uh, hopefully um, it will have some advantages that, that you've just pointed out, but that does seem to be a, a worry of, uh, if you can't know about one sufficiently, can you know about uh, two or five? Um, I want to brought up the in-group, out-group dynamic again. Um, this the, the um, vilification of the other side um, and, and how this sets up epistemic barriers and that we just don't hear what the other side has to say. We, we, we disregard it. We think of it as epistemically suspect. Um, how, how does the fact that a city like New York, which is um, kind of lopsidedly democratic, um, not the fact that it's democratic, but lopsidedly politically oriented, or, or so it would seem. Um, how does that affect um, some of these issues? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you see this uh, more and more with various kinds of uh, gerrymandering efforts, bipartisan sometimes, uh, where there's almost an effort to draw these districts that are then really homogeneous, where a lot of the people within them have the same views or similar views. And on the one hand, you know, that can be good because then your representative is likely to be somebody that most people feel connected to and feel like, oh, this person really represents me. On the other hand, it can be bad because you really become out of touch with the other side. So, you know, in a, uh, you know, a predominantly democratic place, you might have a really hard time understanding where the Republicans are coming from at all. And you might just see them as an other and obviously the same happens in reverse. So you get this kind of, you know, the coastal elites versus the kind of rural middle. And, you know, that kind of dynamic isn't healthy for a political community where we're supposed to be all in it together in some sense. Uh, I also think a bad thing can happen when you're in a very uh, homogeneous political community where you don't get enough pushback or challenge to the ideas. Uh, I think you know, I was in law school at NYU, uh, wonderful law school, loved it very much. Um, but, you know, it was slanted liberal in a certain way. And you know, I'm very left myself. So in a way, I didn't mind that. But on the other hand, I think it was really valuable. We had a few students who were a little bit conservative. And when they would raise a bit of pushback, you know, it's hard to do in a group where there's a dominant voice. Uh, but I think it was really useful for sharpening the thinking and arguments of those of us on the left, you know, really understanding where the other side might be coming from, seeing where the argument might be responding to us and giving us a better sense of, you know, what actually would be a compelling thing for everybody rather than just for my side. So I think there are dangers on that front. I think there can also be a kind of complacency that sets in if you're a long-term elected official from a very so-called safe district, you might stop thinking that much on a day-to-day -day basis about what your constituents really need. There's at least a temptation to think, oh, I'm safe. I'm the incumbent from this place. I don't really need to do all that much to kind of get reelected. I can start thinking about other things, like maybe having broader national ambitions or whatever it might be. Uh, and I think that's dangerous. You want to keep people 
having to like pay attention to the local constituents. Um, so I think, yeah, those are all worries uh, about that situation. Uh, I also think it can be a false homogeneity, right? Like maybe everybody's on, you know, in support of Democrats, but there's a huge range within that of different views that people might have. And I think that can get uh, flattened in cases where you have a dominant two-party system and we really only get to pick, you know, Democrat or Republican and not a lot of nuance within that. And I think often there's wide divergence within these parties about what ought to be done. And again, you know, that's a, a reason to try to come up with institutional things to bring that actual diversity to the, the foreground. I definitely think that's the, the case, certainly here in New York, uh, among many Democrats, there's much to debate about uh, amongst themselves. Um, as we end here, I, I would like uh, to hear if you have any suggestions, uh, any advice, what can we, uh, you know, as we go into this election season here in New York, what can we do to pay, um, to, to mitigate some of these um, epistemic worries um, that we face, what are, other than trying to find out as much as we can about the various issues um, and the candidates and what their platforms are? Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think obviously trying to uh, both engage with the news and kind of learn about the different issues, uh, but also trying to find different sources, not necessarily just going to the same few. Um, I think, honestly, trying to attend some kind of town hall, small discussion style things in various places or to create those and set those up, often with other members of your political community who you might not necessarily interact with all the time. So go beyond just your kind of local, wherever you happen to live, you might, that might be useful, but to really learn about what other people think. Because I think ideally when we make political decisions, it should be informed both by what the candidate is saying he or she will do, but also by what our fellow constituents might want. And often that's hard to learn about and it won't be necessarily reported on the news. And I think sometimes we get polling, but sometimes we don't on certain issues. So trying to uh, uncover that information too and create opportunities to learn more about what uh, your kind of fellow political community members think about things. Um, and obviously there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, I think the, the other piece of you know, advice or suggestion, uh, try to be in touch and engage with people who have different views than you do. Maybe don't focus on the differences, right? So there's a political scientist, Diana Mutz, who has this really nice work showing how one of the reasons for the sharp um, political rhetoric and partisan divide comes from the dissolution, the uh, kind of uh, elimination of these kind of mid-level friendships and interactions with people who, you know, maybe you know them through work or, you know, you, you play pickup basketball with them or you have a kind of low friendship with them. Uh, you're not best friends, you're not family, uh, but they have different political views than you do. And you come to appreciate them and respect them as a person uh, before really talking a lot about politics. And I think creating those kinds of ties and friendships across lines that maybe, you know, get us outside of our normal comfort zones a little bit uh, can be really valuable when you do that. And it might help open your eyes to political views and issues that otherwise are really hard 
to understand. Um, and so I think that's another thing you can do uh, or, or think about trying to do as a, you know, as a citizen. The philosopher uh, Robert Talese uh, argues something very similar um, about how we need to um, engage with our fellow citizens uh, less as citizens and and uh, and voters, um, but as uh, people, um, and just put sometimes put the politics aside. Uh, it would it would help our civic relations. Yeah, and get off uh, get off Twitter and social media. I mean, <laughs> stay on them if you want, but uh, try to have richer interactions that aren't just you know aggressive fighting with somebody that you've never met and never will meet online. Like that's uh, so corrosive for the spirit, but also I think it really gives us this false impression of our uh, political community and the other people in it and what their views are. I mean, it's I think really pernicious. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent advice. Um, thank you very much, Alex Guerrero, for taking the time and uh, sharing uh, your ideas with us. Um, look forward. Well, it's been to my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Susan Lerner is the executive director of the New York chapter of Common Cause, a good government watchdog group based in Washington, D.C., with chapters in 35 states. Ms. Lerner has served in that position since December 2007. Passionate about voting rights and accessible, reliable, and secure elections, Susan is a founder of Let New York Vote, a statewide coalition that has successfully advocated to bring transformative election reforms, such as early voting, and automatic voter registration to New York State. She heads Rank the Vote New York City, which is conducting a citywide voter education campaign following its success in placing and passing ranked choice voting on the November 2019 NYC ballot. And I'm very happy she agreed to speak with me today. Susan Lerner, welcome to FI on New York. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to begin, you know, given all your focus um, on, on that why have you dedicated so much of your career uh, to this work, to this good government work? Why does it matter to you? Well, it matters to me, I think, from a social justice perspective, but I want to just briefly, you know, share a personal story. Um, I grew up in a farm community. My parents had a chicken farm. The primary product was eggs. And there was a tremendous dip in the price as more factory farms came online. Um, and half of the community that I grew up in, and I, I'm Jewish, and the Jewish community in that town were people who had survived the Holocaust in Europe. And uh, the farmers got together and they decided to go down to Washington, D.C. to ask for subsidies uh, for family farms, uh, for family farms to hold up the price of eggs because they were looking at having to go out of business. And I was on a bus. I was about maybe 10, nine or 10 years old. And I was on a bus and I remember going, entering Washington, DC. And I remember seeing the Jefferson Memorial 
And one of our neighbors, who was somebody who had numbers on his arm, passed in Europe, turned to me and said, 10 years ago, they were trying to kill us in Europe. And today I am in America and I am going to talk to the government. That was a really formative experience for me. The idea that in America, you can go and talk to your congressman. I spent the day with my father in the halls of Congress, talking to congressmen, walking around, seeing famous people um, in the halls, and that made an indelible impression on me. So to me, it is really the idea, the idea of American government is tremendously inspirational. And to spend time and to be lucky enough to make it my life's work to help explain government to people and to help mobilize them, to give them the tools that they need to do what I did as a 10-year-old with my community around me and speak to the halls of power and provide people with the entree and the confidence to go in and talk to a state legislator, talk to a congressman, to know the government is not removed from we the people, but is actually at our service and that we can communicate our requirements, our needs, and our desires directly. And that has been very exciting and satisfying to do. Thank you very much for sharing that. That's a very powerful reminder of what we are usually brought up to, to value and to cherish about our political system. So could you tell me about your work now, and I guess in particular um, about is ranked choice voting? Um, New York City um, is a well into um, what is perhaps going to be among the most consequential um, election seasons um, that it has seen for quite some time. The uh, new wrinkle in this is that there will be ranked choice voting in the primaries. Tell us about ranked choice voting, why it matters. You know, I think ranked choice voting is a really significant advance in our thinking about voting and how the, system, the political system works for us individually. Um, because ranked choice voting really increases the power of your vote. Um, it gives the voters more choice. And it has, as it's worked out in other jurisdictions, it creates a stronger connection between an elected official and the people that he or she is representing. Because in order to be successful as a candidate in a ranked choice voting election, you cannot, you do not have the luxury, if I can call it that, of just talking to your base and feeling assured that if you say what's popular with your base and you turn out enough of those people and there are six other candidates and you get 34% because your base is pretty much that percentage of the electorate that you're going to win. You cannot do that in a ranked choice voting election and be confident that you will be successful. You have to get out of your base. You have to talk to more voters. You have to appeal to more communities. 
And you have to really find the commonalities and the consensus positions that work for the maximum number of people in the jurisdiction that you want to represent. That is very different from the winner-take-all system that we've had in New York City previously and that we see in most places in our country where the political consultant says, oh, don't bother to talk to those people. They're never going to vote for you. You stick with the ones that we know already like you, and you just get more of them to vote. That is not healthy for our democracy. What is healthy for our democracy is an elected official who, when they start their work uh, in whatever office, is able to say, you know, I talked to the Asian community in my district, and I understand why they are so frightened right now, because I have heard about their concerns, and I have heard about the problems, I've heard about the racism, and I have a better understanding of how to help them as an elected official. I've also heard from elected officials that they feel that they have more of a mandate coming into office with a ranked choice voting election because they're not the choice of a portion of the district. They are the consensus choice of the majority of the district. And that gives them a different attitude. And it also gives them a broader base on which to advocate for the policies that they were elected on. From the voters' point of view, it means that in almost every instance, they're hearing from many different candidates. And that is advantageous to us as voters. We're getting the information that we need to make an informed choice and to be sure that we have more confidence that the person that we have chosen to represent us understands the district and has a, a real base of support. Um, and so, you know, in order to choose up to five candidates to rank, I need to know a certain baseline of information about all five. And I'm motivated to find out about more than just my first choice because I know I can rank. Listeners to this conversation are very likely to have heard uh, my previous conversation with the philosopher uh, Alex Guerrero. Um, and uh, in that conversation, he speaks about, uh, he has concerns about what he refers to as uh, epistemic pathologies of electoral democracy, problems that are rooted in knowledge or our lack of it uh, in elections. And uh, on the one hand, there's a challenge that we do not know enough about the issues. We don't know enough about the people who are um, who want to represent us and then who wind up being our representatives. We don't know enough about their really their abilities and, and capacities, and we don't know enough about what they are doing in, a, in order to really solve the problem. So there's a there's a challenge of responsiveness. Is, is the representative being responsive to our needs? Are we in a position to actually know that? Um, so you have, in your comments there, you're saying that on the one hand, we are becoming more motivated to learn more about these candidates. Um, and so, you know, we are going to try to get more information. We want to, to find out 
more than merely about the candidate that seems to resonate with us for whatever reason. But you also said something that was very, very interesting to me, which I haven't heard uh, other people say. Um, the candidates themselves will therefore be motivated will be motivated to learn more about various different constituencies. Yeah. They do not have to merely speak to their base, as you say, um, and alienate it other um, any any other constituencies. So they learn more about who they are in fact represented representing and that kind of puts more pressure on them to be responsive to those to those communities um, so I, I think that's a, a very interesting way to think about it and you know so I'd like to hear perhaps I mean, more if you want to yeah, add I on think, to that or, or you know we we uh, here in New York, you know, we have the advantage of not being the first jurisdiction in the United States to, uh, you know, uh, use ranked choice voting. And so I've had uh, uh, the ability and the pleasure of speaking to elected officials and to advocates in places like Minneapolis and Santa Fe and San Francisco and Oakland that have had ranked choice voting uh, for many different election cycles. Santa Fe is relatively new. Uh, but Oakland and San Francisco, 15 years or more. Uh, Minneapolis, more than 10 um, or approximately 10. And talking to people who ran campaigns and who won and who were in office. who And in some instances, people who ran before ranked choice voting was adopted and won and then ran with ranked choice voting and won. And it's their insight into how they changed their campaign style. And what we've learned from activists and candidates in those jurisdictions that really uh, colored my comments, that it really does make a difference. Um, you wanna be everybody's, if you're not gonna be the voter's first choice, you wanna be their second or third choice. You wanna be ranked and you wanna be ranked high if at all possible. So we have you know, various races where the second or the, the candidate who was ranked second or in one or two isolated instances, third, ended up being the winner. And when you went back and looked at their campaign and looked at how they performed through the ranked choice voting rounds, it was because they had reached out to every part of the district. And they had established relationships and credibility with voters from that part of the district, from that one community or another community. And therefore, they were ranked second. So when people's first choices were eliminated in the ranked choice voting rounds, the vast majority of people had chosen this, in, you know, this candidate as their second choice. The first Asian mayor of San Francisco was elected in that paradigm, Ed Lee. Um, and so it really provides an incentive to get to know the voters, to understand the issues, and to put forward your broadest base solutions, as opposed to being more, you know, just sticking with a, a, a sliver. And that would seem to um, help with disincentivize negative campaigning, the type of campaigning which which 
many of us find very exhausting and and just a, a turnoff, which leads me to you know the question: Do you expect increased voter turnout? One of the problems in New York City is is a history of low voter engagement, um, kind of disappointing, and there can be a number of different issues uh, or reasons for that. But uh, do you, from from your knowledge of of ranked choice voting in other um, jurisdictions, do you expect um, that this will incentivize more voting? Turnout is one of the most difficult issues that we as civic engagement activists face. There's no one magic solution. Ranked choice voting in some places has resulted in more turnout, in others it hasn't. Um, Turnout is dependent on so many different factors, not the least of which is how interesting the candidates are. Now, we would hope with ranked choice voting that the candidates make better connections with the voters um, and that more people turn out as a result, but that's not a guarantee. And sometimes the candidates, even though they're working hard, just don't spark with the electorate and people are like, eh, I can rank, but not that excited about anybody. So it's when the contests present contrast, when people think uh, that, uh, you know, they really have an interest. Now, I would hope, given how important this election is here in New York City, that we will see an increase in turnout. We haven't seen that with the two special elections in Queens, um, but I don't know that they're necessarily a model. We don't say that ranked choice voting is necessarily going to increase turnout. Yeah, the special elections might not be the best uh, right. model to exactly. use. And, and of course, challenges to the broader elections are the pandemic. And um, there's a question of whether candidates, um, I shouldn't uh, let me say voters are, how familiar they are with candidates when the candidates are primarily uh, interacting on Zoom. How many people? And by mail, and by mail, right? So, yes, it is definitely challenging. And it remains to be seen. What we do know is that the candidates, the vast majority of candidates, and there's a big majority of candidates, right? We have over 500 people running, over 300 are running for city council. Um, You know, obviously, a multiplicity of districts, but nonetheless, it's not unusual to have nine to 12 candidates running for a single seat. Um, that they're the vast majority have engaged with ranked choice voting. They've changed their campaigning as a consequence. They're educating voters about ranked choice voting as well as their own positions. Um, and you know, we're expecting that the vast majority of people who vote in the primary in June are going to be familiar with ranked choice voting and are going to rank. More than that, I, I am not predicting. Okay. We'll see how it, how it goes. Hopefully, uh, it will have a positive effect. Um, another question I have on voting or staying on voting, um, this isn't about ranked choice, uh, but I do think it has an effect on engagement, and that is um, the fact that New York State is closed primaries. Is that something that you have 
thought about something that common cause is yeah. has worked on um, and just to be clear for the audience the idea of closed primaries um, in New York State uh, only those registered for a particular party's primary the Democratic primary you have to be a registered Democrat to vote in the Republican primary you have to be a registered Republican if you are a registered uh, independent you cannot vote in the primaries um, I can't remember the exact date. I think it was in February, which was the it deadline. Was Valentine's Day. It was Valentine's Day. Thank you. Um, to um, to make sure that you are registered as a Republican or a Democrat. Um, no doubt there will be there were people who missed that deadline. Um, and there no doubt would be people who chose not to make that change for perhaps principled reasons. Um, why is New York closed? Um, it does not seem to benefit the voters. Um, who does this benefit, if anyone? So, so in New York, our election law is not set up to benefit the voters. In New York, our election law is dictated and set up to benefit the political parties. This is definitely a, a long-term vestige of the uh, Tammany Hall political boss system. And most of our election law was written in the late 19th century. Um, and it allows the political parties to have a stranglehold on our elections. And that's a very different starting place and a very different philosophy than, for instance, the election laws that are written in the Western part of the state that do not have a history of party dominance and who start from a more neutral position that if it, that were written during a progressive era with a different attitude towards who was entitled to participate in government and decide what it did. So how does the, the parties, how does the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Working Families Party, how do they benefit by my registering with them, registering as a Republican or a Democrat. How does the party benefit? Yes. So how do they the benefit? The benefits from by remaining one of the two major parties that gets, that gets special privileges under our election law that is able to place people on the ballot uh, for, uh, you know, in the state special elections, not the city special elections, without actually having uh, a primary or nomination process. They get to choose who runs, who runs our election administration. They have priorities and privileges that, the, that ordinary voters do not. So there's information that candidates get, information that political parties get, that it, the average voter cannot access. Um, and the process of the election is basically built around ensuring that the candidates have a say and are monitoring what's going on and is relatively indifferent until most recently, but still organizationally, to how it's perceived by voters and what their experience is. Yeah, this is an unfortunate situation for those who I mentioned 
yeah. haven't so, haven't yeah. registered. Yeah. And I you think asked, that's uh, you asked if Common Cause has a position. I don't know that we have organizationally across the country a position. We are active in states that approach the primaries entirely differently. So we are active. We have the two most active chapters are New York and California. And you could not have more two diametrically experienced, opposed experiences of American democracy in those two states. And I've been lucky enough to do good government work in both. And it's just mind boggling how different the approach is. I think an interesting model for a state like New York that has an ironclad closed primary and a political party apparatus with a stranglehold on our elections is the Massachusetts model, which is not an open primary per se, but a system where a person who is an unaffiliated voter can come in and choose to be a Democrat or a Republican on election day, on the primary day. So if you're an unaffiliated voter and you come in and you say, I would like to be a Democrat, you register as a Democrat right then and there, and you then are given a Democratic ballot. And you're then registered in that party. Now, you don't have to stay in that party. You would have to change your registration either to go be unaffiliated again or join some other party. But if you are an unaffiliated voter, you are not totally, you're not disenfranchised by the primary system the way we are in New York. And the registration is happening at the same time, essentially as the voting, which would make it much more convenient. Right. Now here, if you're a new voter, you, you can register for a political party at the registration deadline, which is 25 days before the primary, and go in and vote in that party's primary. But if you are registered today as a Republican, you had until February 14th of this year to become a Democrat if you wanted to vote in the Democratic primary. And obviously in a a city like New York, um, where uh, we've had Republican mayors, of course, um, there is the possibility, though, that the action will be in the primary. Um, I would say it's just that ninety percent of the time, if not more, the winner of the Democratic primary is going to be the winner of the general election, and that is because for uh, in most of the city, the preponderance of Democratic to Republican registration is way out of balance. Good luck finding any significant proportion of Republican registrants in central Brooklyn. Well, I I was looking at statistics um, earlier, and I think there's over 3 billion registered Democrats in New York City. There's about 500,000 or so registered Republicans, but there's over a million. There's over a million, though, that are unaffiliated. Unaffiliated. Well, you know, that's a lot of people who can't vote. That's right. Do you know what we call what they are called? by, you know, the political class in New York, the unaffiliated voter? Blanks. Talk about a philosophy, okay? That tells you what you need to know about the attitude. And yes, they are disenfranchised of the primary. They are disenfranchised in election administration because the election administration in our state is evenly split 
between Democratic commissioners and Republican commissioners. And where you have now a situation where the unaffiliated blank voter is uh, registering in numbers that equal or eclipse the Republican Party, there's a, a definite unfair uh, you know, status uh, to how we are organizing our elections. But in a state without an initiative process where the legislature is control in control of everything and the political parties are the ones supporting the incumbents, it's very difficult to convince them to change the status of the political parties in our election system. So this is not an epistemological problem per se, but it's a, a challenge that our, our voting system here in New York State poses um, for elect, electoral democracy, making it unresponsive in a certain way, disenfranchising a number of different voters. Again, this previous conversation I had um, with uh, Alex Guerrero, he has developed a, a, he's trying to deal with these problems. He's trying to, the, to address some of the limitations of electoral democracy. And he has a, a, a proposal, which basically is to offer um, as a replacement, much more participatory democracy rather than representative. Okay. So if we can't elect people who are going to be responsive for various reasons, if we are in a position of ignorance in with respect to what it is they are in fact doing, if the representatives themselves are in a position of relative ignorance because many of them were, you know, very lawyers, business people, um, <coughs> they, um, we're, we're, asking them to take on um, this kind of generalist position of, of dealing with all sorts of different issues, which they may have no, um, you know, no background in. The way to overcome this would actually be to engage in the process of democracy ourselves. So it's a very appealing idea, but it requires a very, very high degree of attention and participation <clears throat> from members of the public. And, you know, I think <clears throat> the problem is illustrated by the direct participatory democracy that we see. Again, I'm going to revert back to my own experience in California, <clears throat> where you have an initiative process and where citizens can place measures on the ballot. But <clears throat> what the result has been is that you often have contradictory measures, either simultaneously or in seriatim. That, <clears throat> that direct participation is a very bad way to legislate. And when you have a state where the budget is larger than most European countries, as we are here, or equal to, with tremendous complexity, having everything determined by individual voters, I think would be <clears throat> even more problematic than the system that we have. What we need is a mix, I think, 
of a direct participation and representation and a, a political system which allows us to hold our elected officials to account much more effectively. That idea of this latocracy, as he refers to it, um, might be one kind of uh, at one end of the spectrum, kind of an extreme right. way of dealing with the challenges of representative you know, democracy. The, but the what New can England, we do? The New England town hall. Right? Yes. But that's a very small microcosm of issues. How do you deal with a state that has a budget of, I think they're talking about 190000 dollars in Albany right now? That's extremely complex. 190. I'm sorry, 190 billion. I'm sorry, I misspoke. 190 billion. Yeah. So, well, what are some of the things short of that that we could we could do differently that would increase citizen engagement, civic engagement in our own government? Right. What that would make. Particularly New York City, which is the the focus of our of right. of fly on New York here. What can we do? What suggestions would you have for us? There are a couple of things. One is removing barriers to participation. Um, registration in order to vote was developed as a voter suppression measure, and it's very effective as a voter suppression measure. In other countries, when you become of age to vote, you are either automatically registered or you are invited to register. Think about that philosophical shift. If the government reaches out to people, if the Selective Service can track down, you know, male children when they reach the age of 18, then we can track down 18-year-olds across the country of whatever gender and invite them to participate. Make it clear that the expectation is that you will be civically engaged, that it is important to your life and to your government that you participate, as opposed to people who say, oh, I don't pay attention to that, it's politics. The second thing we need to do is that we need to reinstitute a really vigorous civic engagement um, program in our schools. We need to be teaching government and civics. It used to be that in certain states, and New Jersey was one decades ago, that when you graduated from high school, they gave you your own paperback copy of the U.S. Constitution. Now, again, that is a philosophical shift. What does that say? That says to a young person, This foundational document is so important that every single citizen should have their own copy. This outlines, governs your life, be familiar and use it, as opposed to, oh, too complicated for you, why why would you care what's happening in Congress? Most people don't even know about the state legislature, and that starts first and foremost with the fact that we literally stopped teaching government and civics in our schools in the 60s and 70s. And that was a major, major mistake. So it's much easier for misinformation and disaffection to to proliferate. And lastly, I think, certainly in New York, I would like to see a system 
that I call a blended initiative system. And that is that citizens can petition to place a measure on the ballot that they think is important. And that when they reach a certain threshold of public support, that is signatures on a supporting petition, that that measure automatically becomes a bill and the legislature has X amount of time to either pass it, modify it, and have an agreement with the initiators, or if they do nothing, the initiators can then try and put it on the ballot. Because right now we don't have any way for citizens to reliably move an issue forward that they believe is important. And it's the disjunction we see most startlingly in Congress between what's important to members of the public and what Congress takes up. And we see that sometimes here in New York as well. There is no way to force the legislature to address an issue the public thinks is important that the legislature either doesn't care about or is afraid of. And that should change. And the problem of responsiveness. That's right. Uh, do you, are, are you familiar with a jurisdiction that has such a blended model? Massachusetts and Oklahoma, okay? Um, so the public has a way to demand attention to a topic that they feel is really important. But one of the things that we've seen in initiative states is that in most instances, once you draft an initiative and start to petition, if you've made some mistake in how you've put together the law, you are stuck. You can't go in and fix it. And you don't have the advantage of being forced to negotiate a consensus solution. You can draft whatever extreme position you feel is you know, purest from your point of view without having to deal in some instances with reality. So the idea is to take the strengths of the initiative system, which allows a citizen to force government to address an issue, and then the strengths of a legislative solution, which requires a negotiation and a practical, realistic solution to the problem to be conjoined. Thank you very much for these ideas and for this conversation. Um, Susan Lerner, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I look forward to um, seeing the results of uh, ranked choice voting in our primary coming up in June. Thank you so much. My pleasure as well. Take care. Thank you. So that'll do it for our first episode. You can let me know what you think about it, and you can suggest ideas or topics to be discussed on a future episode by reaching out to me on Twitter, either my own handle at JSBeal or that of the Gotham Philosophical Society at Philosophy NYC. You can also email me at podcast at philosophy.nyc. Special thanks to Mike Sport Murphy for his voiceover and production on the intro, and to Jay Sparrow for composing and performing our theme music. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join us next time. Mm-hmm.